Tosha, and you're listening to the Supernova Tosha Show podcast, the show that addresses social issues and how it affects our community. And today we're going to be discussing Florida's new history curriculum. So I'm not sure how many of you are familiar if you're not in the state of Florida. I don't know if you're uh, following Florida news, um, but this affects this affects us in, um, you know, uh, in the schools. It affects uh, our children, the way they're going to learn about African-American history. And, you know, children grow into adults. And as adults, you tend to move around. So eventually this is going to affect our future. So um, there have been uh, discussions regarding changes in the history curriculum for middle school students in the state of Florida. And it is important to note that these changes were not initiated by Governor Ron DeSantis, but rather by the Florida Department of Education. Uh, The new guidelines will include teaching that slavery provided personal benefits for black individuals due to the development of job skills. Additionally, high school students will learn about instances of violences perpetrated against Black communities during white supremacist massacres, such as the Rosewood incident, well, not incident, but the Rosewood massacre in uh, 1923, where a white mob destroyed a Black town and caused the loss of many lives with Black people being the perpetrators of violence during such massacres. That is false. Um, It is worth mentioning that the curriculum changes are being implemented in a state where approximately 64%, that is 64% of the student population is Black. There is so much controversy surrounding the language used in Florida's educational standards regarding the benefits of slavery for enslaved people. The benchmark clarification suggests that the instruction should include the idea that slaves develop skills which in some cases could be applied for their personal benefits. However, um, multiple experts on Black history and racism in the United States have expressed concerns about misleading um, the misleading nature of this language. In fact, enslaved people did not possess any special skills that benefited them after their enslavement. And for the majority, the skills were limited to tasks like picking cotton and being forced into slavery um, prevented them from even realizing their full potential. Uh, There was no upside to slavery for the enslaved, and it was a great injustice inflicted upon humanity. The current standards in question lack comprehensive discussion regarding the systemic racial issues that led to the enslavement of individuals. And while there is some attention given to the actions of white individuals who oppose slavery, such as their involvement in the Underground Railroad and support for reconstruction policies, the standards fail to adequately address the broader context and impact of systemic racism. Additionally, the inclusion of information about skills learned by slaves for their personal benefit without proper historical context has been questioned by historians who specialize in the study of slavery. Furthermore, the standards do not 
and I repeat, the standards do not sufficiently address groups such as the Ku Klux Klan who oppose the idea of American equality. Um, the modifications to the history cur curriculum were implemented following the enactment of um, Governor DeSantis, that's the governor of Florida. Uh, governor DeSantis stop woke law by the Florida legislature. Um, so the stop the stop woke law uh, that law aims to safeguard students and workers from experiencing discrimination based on race, color, sex, or national origin. While Governor DeSantis has supported new guidelines, he also attempted to distance himself from them. See, basically because he's getting a lot of backlash. Anyways, during a recent press conference in Salt Lake City, um, when confronted with the wording of one of the benchmarks, DeSantis stated that he was not directly involved in its creation. So there he goes, backtracking. Um, that may be true. However, DeSantis is fully supporting this new curriculum. So um, I would say let's go ahead and uh, dive a little deeper to the Stop Woke Act. Now, the Stop Woke Act has, um, this well, Florida has recently passed a law known as the Stop Woke Act, which places restrictions on topics that employers can discuss during diversity training in the workplace. This law also referred to as the Florida House Bill 7, Senate 148, HB 7, aligns with Governor DeSantis' agenda of, prohibit, of prohibiting corporations' training and school lessons that make individuals uncomfortable regarding the actions of their ancestors. The law prohibits um, employers with 15 or more employees from um, subjecting their employees to diversity training that causes dis discomfort by discussing certain defined concepts. Now, these concepts are related to attributing responsibility for uh, past actions to individuals based upon their race, based upon their, uh, their color, their sex, based upon their national origin. Um, the law broadens the definition of discrimination under the Florida Civil Rights Act to include making someone uncomfortable over their uh, historical events involving their if, if they share the race, the, the color, the gender or the nationality of um, their ancestors that uh, enslaved people. So as a result, Employers are no longer allowed to make participation in such diversity training mandatory for employees. However, employers can still offer these trainings on a voluntary basis. It's important to note that the law aims to control the content of the training rather than individuals' feelings about a particular topic. So while the bill has generated uh, divisive decisions, the specific provisions can be found in HB 7 of the Florida Civil Rights Act. The history curriculum has been changed due to discussions about race. It must be taught in an objective manner, <laughs> in an objective manner, and should not be used to indoctrinate or persuade students to a particular point of view, as well as students should not feel guilty for actions taken in the past by people who share the same race. Um, so this guilty feeling that some people, you know, this guilty feeling, uh, some people should own it. Those who continue to um, 
to be racist and they commit hate crimes, they should definitely feel guilty because they're continuing to do something that is um, oppressive and against the law. Um, I think the term that is being um, mislabeled for the, the term that's being mislabeled, they're saying uh, guilt, but it's not guilt. It's called empathy. Uh, so when you feel empathetic towards someone is there's a, a difference between empathetic and being um, and feeling guilty. So empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. Um, it is a positive trait that allows individuals to connect uh, and support one another. Um, it is important for people of different backgrounds to strive for empathy and understanding as it promotes unity and inclusivity. It's also important to recognize that empathy should not be based on guilt or pity, but rather on a genuine desire to understand and support others. Building empathy requires recognizing and appreciating the experiences and struggles of individuals from different backgrounds. It is a continuous learning process for everyone involved. And there are many individuals of goodwill, regardless of their race. Um, they can experience empathy towards individuals from different racial backgrounds. Empathy in contrast to guilt or pity involves understanding and relating to someone's situation. Uh, by imagining oneself in their shoes. It is important to note that empathy should not be accompanied by shame unless one has personally engaged in shameful behavior. It is encouraged for individuals to acknowledge and appreciate their empathy towards the struggles of others as it reflects their character and aligns with the values advocated by many of who fought to end slavery and to also to end discrimination. Um, so with this, I want to show you a video. Um, it's maybe about four or five minutes long. Um, it, it, it's, it's, about, it's about slavery, but... I just want you to know that it has, it doesn't even touch, it doesn't even touch slavery. Uh, this is kind of just like the um, the middle passage and how things got started. And um, you let me know if there's anything beneficial in this video. So go ahead and, and take a look at the video and comment below and let me know what you think. 66, 12 and a half million Africans were taken from their homeland and forcibly transported across the Atlantic, a journey that approximately 2 million of them would not survive. By the turn of the 18th century, European merchants were building vessels capable of transporting hundreds of enslaved people per journey. These ships had extra portholes for ventilation, weapons mounted on deck in case of rebellion, and additional compartments added below deck to take on more human cargo. Before boarding the ships at African port cities, enslaved people were stripped of their clothing and remaining possessions and had their heads forcibly shaved. During boarding, which could take weeks or even months, enslaved people lived on the deck of the ship in a temporary wooden house constructed by the crew. The crew also installed netting around the deck of the ship designed to catch those enslaved who might opt for death over forced servitude. Once moved below deck, enslaved people would find themselves stuffed into compartments with ceilings as low as four and a half feet, where they would spend most of their voyage. They were segregated by gender and age. Adult men were kept separately and shackled in pairs, 
Women, usually left unchained in their designated compartment, and children, often free to move about the ship. There were no sanitary facilities of any kind. Enslaved people were forced to relieve themselves where they sat, creating hellish conditions when combined with the heat and lack of ventilation below deck. Disease was rampant. Dysentery, malaria, yellow fever, smallpox, measles, and influenza ravaged the enslaved and crew members alike. The enslaved people generally spent about eight hours a day above deck, but were still separated by gender, with a barricado, a reinforced wall that could be used to protect crew members in case of a revolt. Enslaved people were also subject to forced exercise, which sometimes included dance and song for the entertainment of the crew. Enslaved captives deemed disobedient were tortured and beaten, usually whipped with the especially cruel cat nine tails a tool designed to inflict maximum pain. Enslaved people who refused to eat their typical meal of rice and beans were forced to do so, sometimes with a speculum oris, a medieval tool used to force open a person's mouth. Women, while usually left unshackled, were raped and sexually abused by members of the crew, sometimes arriving in the new world, carrying the children of their attackers. But it was the women, using their minuscule freedoms, who would often coordinate mutinies against their captors. But these rebellions were rarely successful. The true extent of the horrors of the Middle Passage came to light in a 1783 court trial over the slave ship Zong. The Zong left present-day Ghana in August of 1781 with 442 enslaved on board. After a two-month journey riddled with navigation errors, 62 enslaved people and seven crew members had perished without reaching their destination. Disease was spreading throughout the ship, and fresh water was running dangerously low. Captain Luke Collingwood was afraid of the financial cost of more deaths. Enslaved people that died of disease were not covered by the ship's insurance, but the enslaved who drowned were. Collingwood ordered approximately 130 enslaved people thrown overboard. He claimed it was necessary to do so to halt the spread of disease. At the trial between the Zong's owners and their insurance company, the owners argued that because it was legal to kill sick animals for the health of a ship, it was legal to treat enslaved people the same. The court agreed with the ship's owners, but the trial itself exposed the horrors aboard the Zong, and its story was republished by British abolitionists with the name of the ship redacted meant to show that this tragedy could happen on any ship transporting enslaved people across the Middle Passage. 24 years after the Zong trial, the international slave trade was outlawed in both Great Britain and the United States. It would take England an additional 26 years and the U.S. another 58 years plus a civil war before the practice of slavery was officially abolished. Man, um, again, hard to watch. Um, <clears throat> I feel a lump in my throat. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, something that's, you know, not even going to be part of the cur curriculum. Um, I don't know. They're trying to erase history, and um, it's really, really up to us 
to keep our history alive. Um, we can't ever forget. And when people ask us to get over it and to forget and move on, we have moved on, but we can never forget. And we have to teach um, the ones that are coming up. We have to teach them. We have to remind them. We have to let them know because we can't ever go back there. We can't ever go back there. Um, people from the continent, continent of Africa had lives similar to those of the Europeans who uh, enslaved them. They lived in diverse settings, including cities, towns, and rural areas. And uh, there was a range of wealth and social status among them. Um, they experienced both peace and they experienced conflict, just like Europeans did. Um, they had many cultures. Uh, they, value, they valued family. Um, they worked diligently and they found joy and artistic expression. It was important to recognize that Africa is a vast continent with various ethnic groups, languages, and religions, much like the diverse nations of Europe during that time. Uh, the experience of being captured and forcibly separated from loved ones was undoubtedly traumatic. Imagine the pain of leaving without um, the chance to say goodbye or inform your family members of what occurred. Enslaved Africans were often bound together with other Africans who spoke uh, different languages, different dialects. Um, they had different cost customs. They were from different tribes. And, um, you know, I'm sure that was confusing and, uh, you know, extremely hostile to work, you know, for them. The slave trade and the Middle Passage brought uh, immersible suffering that had, uh, you know, that had been occurring for centuries as white individuals sought and purchased black individuals from Africa. Now, uh, in elementary school, um, I don't recall covering this topic um, extensively or even covering that topic at all. Elementary school has been many, many years for me <laughs> in the 1900s. Um, but in middle school uh, or junior high, uh, you know, whatever you um, you call it, um, the lessons of African slaves, uh, the, you know, they lacked important details and uh, they presented in a simplified version. Even in high school, um, I took a class that specifically focused on African-American studies where, um, you know, the, the class that I took it so it was supposed it was supposed to focus on um, African American studies and um, there may still be areas where the education you know that that fell short because yeah it, there was there's a lot that was that was missing um, while attending high school I joined an African American club and initially it was promising but the more I stayed, it kind of more focused on talent shows rather than providing comprehensive education. And um, so in the early 90s, um, what happened is I was actually researching on Malcolm X. So this is how I learned about African-American. I'm just kind of giving you a little uh, personal experience for me. So again, um, going through elementary school, middle school, high school, um, as they call it, whitewashed. African-American studies and African-American history was whitewashed. And even joining that club, um, it was it was pointless because they just more focused on um, talent shows, who could be the best singer, who could be the best dancer. And, um, you know, I think just 
shucking and driving is not, that's not the black experience. So anyway, um, in the early nineties, when researching Malcolm X for a report, the concept of him teaching that the white man is the, uh, that that's what he taught that the white man is the devil. Um, I didn't understand why. I'm like, why is he teaching this? Why is he teaching this hatred? Why is he so against it? And I wanted to know why. So I, you know, I delved deeper into it. Um, it was intriguing to me. So um, it was uh, it was difficult to understand the hatred between blacks and whites. Um, and the reason why it was difficult for me is um, I, I'm an immigrant. So I was I was born in Jamaica, uh, and then I immigrated to the United States very young. And the few years that I remember, I was a small child in Jamaica, but the few years I remember. Um, I had a neighbor to the to the right. They were Caucasian, but I didn't know that they were Caucasian because we didn't we didn't call people white people in Jamaica. We didn't call them black people. We just they were just my neighbors. They had blonde hair, blue eyes, but they were Jamaican. And uh, the neighbors to the left of me, um, they were mixed with something because um, you can tell that they were they, they were they were a mixture. But again. They were just Jamaicans. We were Jamaican. And then there was us, <laughs> me and my family, and we just, everybody just gelled together. And we were Jamaicans. We weren't separated. We weren't called white Jamaicans, black Jamaicans. We were just Jamaicans. So it was not until I moved to United States where I got that culture shock and um, realized that, oh, okay, so that person's Caucasian and I'm black. And okay, so... Um, you know, I went to school and I just blended in with everyone. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so I really didn't understand until uh, this was like high school and I'm getting ready to leave high school. And so I started doing the report on Malcolm X and, um, you know, just to get to gain a better understanding. Um, I turned to books on slavery and, uh, you know, there was a, there was a big back to Africa movement in the nineties. Um, it was reflected in the music, it was reflected in spoken word. It was reflected in the clothing. Um, like that was the movement in the early nineties. Everybody was, you know, on this back to Africa movement and, um, the, you know, the, the images, uh, the media shared of Africa, such as starving orphans, apartheid, and, um, you know, militant terrorist groups um, wreaking havoc. It left me questioning, why would anyone want to go back to Africa? You know, but again, I was, <laughs> I was, I was a teenager and, um, you know, still not having um, a, a full understanding. Um, and of course, the education system failing me. So I decided to research on my own. So uh, continuing my research, I delved into the various topics and I read extensively. Um, then I started, you know, finding out about slavery and the, the Middle Passage and, um, you know, just exactly on, on the revolts. And then I started reading about uh, Rosewood, Florida. Then I started uh, the, Tul the Tulsa, Oklahoma and, um, um, Central Park. And um, I, I just read and read and read and researched and, you know, it just blew my mind. And then um, prior prior to that, um, I had read the book Color Purple. Um, 
And I was like, okay, this is a really awesome book. And then when they came out with the movie, uh, you know, the movie was so visually inspiring for me, especially, particularly this, particularly the scenes that had um, Africa. So it wasn't until The Color Purple, the movie came out, where um, Celie, the character Celie, her children were adopted and being raised in Africa. And there's a certain part in the movie where it cuts to Africa. And um, by the way, I know Color Purple word word by word. Like I can... I can go and I can be in the play. I can, I could really, I love that movie. But I mean, really at this point, um, I was actually seeing Africa and I became obsessed. So um, I watched it over and over, over the years. I think Color Purple must be about 20, 30 years old and I'll still watch it until this day. And my favorite part, of Color Purple are all the scenes shot in Africa. Additionally, a video from my cousin showcasing her summer in Tanzania captivated me, um, further fueling my fascination with the entire continent. Although I have not yet visited, I have compiled a bucket list of countries to explore, including South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Morocco, Egypt, the Seychelles, uh, the Ivory Coast, and the Cape Verde Islands. And I want to show you a, a, a video because um, when someone to me mentions Africa, Mama Africa, um, the continent of Africa, this is where my mind goes. Um, so I no longer see you know, starving orphans with the, the bloated stomachs and the flies all over them. And, you know, I don't see apartheid. I don't see all of that. I just, in my mind, when I hear Africa, this is what I imagine. Go ahead and play that video. First one on the list is Zanzibar Island and Tanzania. Um, it is one of Lonely Planet's best value destinations and best places to visit if you're on a budget. Um, uh, Zanzibar Island itself is one of Africa's top best destinations, highlight including scuba diving, snorkeling, along with traditional sailing trips. Um, you can also explore the, um, the Old Stone Town and head over northeast for sandy beaches. If you're looking for a more hidden beach holiday, go to the Extra Mile and visit Pingo Island. So Zanzibar Island, I really personally haven't heard much of it, but it is something that I definitely want to visit one of these days if I can. So I suggest you go too if you're on a budget. So the next one on the list is Cape Town and the Cape Wine Lands in South Africa. Cape Town is worth visiting for its picturesque scenery and cosmopolitan flair. It has mild climate and countless things to do, especially for nature um, adventure lovers. Um, and also, you can also visit the Cape Winelands, which is also inexpensive local wines and wine tasting tours. I personally would love to visit Cape Town. I'm not into wine, but if I'd love to go to a place in South Africa, it would definitely be Cape Town. Um, and it is one of and one of the best 20 places to visit in 2020 in Africa. So I suggest you visit Cape Town if you love adventures and if you love pictures and scenery. You can get lots of Instagram-worthy pictures. Um, and if you love going out in nature, South Africa is one of the places to go as well. 
if you're looking for Africa's best beach destination, this one's for you. Malindi, Kenya is places to be in 2020, according to Airbnb's 20 destinations for 2020. The seaside village is trending because it's pretty beaches and natural heritage. It also has an interesting local culture, a fusion of African, Arabic, and European influences. Add fresh seafood, lovely scenery, and good diving. Linda is on demand. I've never heard of this place before, but this is something I would love to visit. I'd love, I love diving because apparently you can do um, diving and what's the city called? Watamu Beach, I think it's called. Um, is less visited and worth considering for diving. So if you're interested in going to a beautiful beach destination, Melindi, Kenya is the place to go. The next one on the list, and I really hope I don't botch this um, word, it's called the Kalahri Desert. Ooh, I really hope I said that right. Um, it is a large um, semi-arid sandy savanna in southern Africa extending for 900,000 square kilometers covering much of Botswana, parts of Namibia, and regions of South Africa. So to see the stars and spend your night in one of the darkest places on earth, one of the greatest poles of the semi-desert region is the absence of man-made stuff. And to me, that is something I would love to go visit because I just love that getaway and that refreshing feel of just being away from society and just being with nature and with earth for a few hours would be an amazing feeling. Um, I've never really heard of this desert before, so uh, apparently it is uh, one of those places you can visit on a budget, especially because it's a desert. You're not going to be spending too much on a desert. You're just going to be in nature um, and looking at the beautiful uh, stars and spending your nights there at night would be an amazing feeling. So I would definitely want to visit this place as well. And last but not least is Giraffe Manor in Nairobi, Kenya. Giraffe Manor is built in 1932. Giraffe Manor is the oldest of the safari collection's property and was modeled on a Scottish hunting lounge. The elegant, long-legged giraffes have roamed its lawn since the 1970s. So it's basically a, an area, a hotel, you can spend the night there, a few nights there, and feed the giraffes in the morning and kind of be living with the giraffes in a sense and I saw this and I absolutely loved this because I just thought it was so cute to just be feeding the giraffes and be living with the giraffes and having that time spent with nature it just looked like something I would want to do and that is something I'm putting on my bucket list as soon as possible <laughs> but I had to put this on the list because um, I've, I've seen it around a few times but it's not something that comes up all the time so I I felt like this needs to be on the list and kind of be, um, you know, more talked about, I guess you could say. So um, if you're ever going to Nairobi, Kenya, try and visit Giraffe Manor and try and visit a few giraffes while you're there for me. <laughs> but um, thank you guys for watching this video. If you guys enjoyed this list, make sure you give it a big thumbs up. Comment down below other things I should do. Make sure you share this video and please subscribe to my channel if you haven't already. Until next time, bye! Oh, I could watch that over and over. So when, again, when someone mentions the word Africa, Africa, oh my goodness. This is what I picture when I hear 
Africa, when I hear about Mama Africa, when I hear about the motherland, this is what I um, picture in my mind. Um, so I, I can't wait. Uh, Giraffe Manor looks um, just exquisite. Like I would just sit there and have breakfast and feed the giraffes. They're so, they look so gentle and they look so um, graceful and um, I don't know, just tall and chic. Kind of reminds, kind of reminds me of myself. <laughs> So um, I hope this is what you think too. I, 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 yeah, on my bucket list, definitely on my bucket list. So uh, I just want to stress that it is um, very, very important to acknowledge that slavery did not benefit Africans. Uh, this, these videos that I showed you, um, these are some of the air, um, some of the, these are some of the things that um, Africans missed out on. And, um, you know, this is how they were living. I mean, we, we were royals and we taught Europeans um, uh, government and economics. And so um, Africans already were educated and had their own skills before they were kidnapped and brought to the Americas, the islands, Portuguese, uh, wherever, um, picking cotton is is not a skill. Um, so I don't I don't know what is the um, the end goal with this uh, curriculum change, but um, it's um, nonsensical. I, I don't understand. I, I I just I don't get it. But anyways. Um, Again, it is important to acknowledge that slavery did not benefit Africans as they had thriving societies with complex um, political structures, art, learning, and technological advancements. Africans excelled in medicine, mathematics, and astronomy. They produced luxury items in bronze, ivory, gold, and terracotta for local use and for trade. West Africans had a long history of trade with Europeans through merchants in Africa, with the Portuguese being the first to sail down the West African coast in the 15th century. Subsequently, the Dutch, British, French, and Scandinavians also engaged in trade, primarily seeking precious items such as gold, ivory, spices, particularly pepper. Um, so this wasn't an, an, an attempt for um, white guilt. Uh, this was to show the aftermath of of slavery that black people for uh, black people for centuries we we so the aftermath of slavery right um, there's so many things that go along with it and I don't know if they're gonna cut that out I, I mean this whole curriculum is so puzzling to me. Um, are we going to know about uh, Trayvon Martin? Are we going to know about George Floyd? Um, are they going to take Malcolm X out of it? Are they going to take away um, Dr. Martin Luther King? Um, I just think the whole thing is so nonsensical. Um, I, I don't understand. But these these conversations, we need to have these conversations. And... Um, you know, so that we can purge our, our cynicism, we can purge our hate, we can purge the divisive, the divisive actions and, and narratives so that we can come together and realize how great love 
can be and how great we can be if we are united. Um, the new curriculum, it's absurd and it's false. It's going to be spreading false information and I don't like it. So our governor supporting this is disappointing um, and it's hurtful. So those are my final thoughts. To the loyal family, the Supernova Tosha Show podcast can be heard on these apps, such as Spotify, Pandora, and TuneIn. Yeah, you can also pick us up on the iHeartRadio. If you have a newer device, you can also get it on Google Podcasts. The goal is to be on the 10 best podcasts to listen to list. So please like, share, subscribe, tell a friend, uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and spread the word. 